Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, veteran historian and journalist Stephen Budiansky. His book, Journey to the Edge of Reason, The Life of Kurt Gödel, was published by W.W. Norton and Company in May 2021. Budiansky's book about Gödel, a brilliant mathematician, follows in the footsteps of his previous biographies of Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes and composer Charles Ives. So I asked Stephen why he chose to write about such different men. They were all intellectually creative people who in some ways just followed their own path, often in great defiance of the attitudes of the times. Ives was a very inventive composer, in some ways the father of modern American music. Oliver Wendell Holmes led an extraordinary life as a soldier in the Civil War and a thinker and a philosopher and a Supreme Court justice. And Gödel certainly defied the conventions of his time in uh, coming up with some really uh, revolutionary ideas about mathematics and logic. And I really, I think after doing Holmes, I wanted to in a sense, return to my roots as a science writer. So I was really looking for a scientist to write about. What made him such a significant mathematician? Well, what he's famous for is this theorem he proved at age 24, which showed that most mathematical systems suffer from a fundamental flaw, that they either have to contain contradictions, which is a real nightmare, or they are going to be incomplete. And by incomplete, what that means is that there are going to be things that are true, mathematical statements that are true, but can never be rigorously proven. And this really upended this whole idealistic program starting in the late 19th century, this belief that we're going to put all of mathematics on this absolutely rock-solid basis. David Hilbert, the great German mathematician, sort of the leader of this effort, said, where are we going to find certainty anywhere if mathematics is not certain? And Gödel basically said, well, there's always going to be things that are true that we cannot rigorously prove. It was a real revolutionary idea. His proof was a work of real genius. I mean, it's, it's one of these things you look at it and you think, how could the human mind have created this structure. It's its like almost a great work of music. You just say, how does everything fall into place just where he needed it? And as I say, he was 24 years old when he did this in 1930. And it um, it's still causing a lot of uh, consternation for computer science, philosophy, artificial intelligence. Still today? Yeah. How yeah. come? It's a basic problem, for example, in computer science is um, are there going to be problems that a computer can never solve? I mean, mathematically, you know, formally described problems, but you run it on a computer and the computer never reaches a solution. It'll run forever. And there are problems that have been encountered this way, which in a sense, Gödel's theorem predicted would happen. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So now, yeah. Um, how comfortable were you with 
being able to explain to a general reader uh, the relative complexity of the mathematical concepts and theories that he came up with. Well, you know, this is something that I've always enjoyed doing. I mean, when I became a writer, I was a science writer, and I loved the idea of being able to explain complicated things to a general audience. And it's what's drawn me to a lot of other subjects I've written about. I mean, when I wrote about Oliver Wendell Holmes, I really enjoyed the aspect of studying and learning about constitutional law and explaining the intricacies of that and the common law, likewise with Ives and music. And uh, the mathematics was certainly challenging in the case of Gödel. I do have a background in math and science, but I had never really done this kind of pure theoretical math and logic. So it was definitely a challenge, but it was one I enjoyed. And it's part of really, as I say, it's what drew me to writing in the first place. So I'm always happy to have the chance to do that. Wow. Well, you do a really good job of explaining his thinking and the significance of his concepts. I think you lost me a little bit when you start talking about the equations and all. But, but even those were fascinating because I could see the logic yeah, yeah. In, in that. So what research did you personally have to do in order to make sure that his concepts were understandable to people who didn't have the kind of math background and science background that you yeah. have? Well, you know, there have been a number of sort of popularizations of his theorem. And some of those, I admit, I read and I felt I understood less when I got to the end than when I started. And so, I mean, I, I did have to spend a lot of time and I talked to people who really do understand this stuff. And and I certainly ran it all by experts uh, who are always going to find nits to pick, you know, with uh, when if you don't say something perfectly accurately, which may not really make a difference for the general reader, but still, in a way, the the heart of the challenge was bringing together his work and his life and and his times and his, the places where he grew up that influenced him. It was almost a relief, you know, when I actually have to say, I remember when I got to the point, I said, oh, now I can just explain some math and I don't have to work in what's happening with Austria and Nazis and, you know, his personal life. And of course, again, that's the challenge and the, and the joy of writing a biography is you get exactly. to interweave these things together. Right. So let's go back a little bit. When was Gödel born and where? In 1906 in Brunn in what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's now Brno in the Czech Republic. And, you know, I had known only the most general things about Austro-Hungary before I started researching this book. And in fact, I spent probably three or four months doing nothing but reading Austrian and Viennese history at the beginning. And it was really important, I think, to understand, I mean, literally where he came from. It was a polyglot, cosmopolitan empire. It was Vienna in particular, a place of incredible scholarship and ferment of ideas and science, arts, music, all going on at this time, right around the turn of the century. And also the terrible political tensions that would help trigger the First World War and break apart the empire. And even when he was growing up, Brunn, now Brno, was divided between German speakers and Czech speakers, a lot of rivalry, the Czechs resenting their 
second class status uh, there, even though they were nominally equal citizens of the empire. But um, you had artists like Klimt and you had Mahler and Schoenberg in music and you had all of these great work in philosophy going on. You had writers like Kafka and Robert Musel And it's still a fascinating question why this place was such a ferment of intellectual activity, but it was very much the world he was in. Did you go to Austria and to the Czech Republic? I did. I did. And so what was that like? Because now you're talking about present day Austria. Right. I was able to see the places he had lived in, in Vienna, which was interesting. They were all pretty much the same, these 19th century solid apartment buildings, which he favored, but still the university was very interesting to see. And um, of course, so much has changed, but a lot of the great monuments and the Ringstrasse, you know, are very much as they were. And you you really got the feeling of the air of the place. And in uh, Brno, I was able to see his, um, the house he lived in that his father had had built uh, just before the First World War. But, you know, it, it always helps. You want to be able to describe what, what was his walk to school like and, you know, where was his father's factory and relation. And in Vienna, of course, seeing where these places were, where things happened. Uh, I mean, you, you do get, I don't think I'm being romantic to say you do get some feel that you just can't get. Uh, remotely, though I must say Google Maps is pretty good, you know, I've seen street scenes <laughs> for places you can't go. <laughs> now, I love the way you allowed um, or enabled readers to see what life was like in Austria, particularly uh, in the 30s as yeah. the Nazis invaded and, you know, yeah. took over Austria and, and all. How did that research come about? Because you really get into details about not only how it affected Gödel, but also his colleagues and friends and yeah. and, uh, and family. Yeah, Gödel was not Jewish, but almost all of his close friends were Jewish, both growing up in high school and at the University of Vienna. And of course, it's the great tragedy of Jews in the Austrian Empire. All the focus is, of course, on Germany and then Hitler. But I mean, in some ways, it was a greater tragedy, I think, because Austria had really become a haven for Jews and a place of incredible opportunity. It wasn't until the 1860s that official discrimination was ended and Jews were allowed to enter the professions, allowed to go to the university. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, they just flocked to this opportunity and it created a backlash. And you see in Vienna's anti-Semitic mayor in 1900, I mean, a real foreshadowing of Hitler, of whipping up this resentment and then putting it increasingly in racial terms of suggesting, you know, Jews are grasping and vulgar, unlike us good Christians who are virtuous and and suggesting it's by nature, you know, by genes. And and it, it starts to become very ugly. So even before the Nazi troops invade and are really overwhelmingly welcomed by the Austrian population in 1938 and Austria becomes part of the German Reich, it was becoming increasingly a desperate situation for many of his friends and colleagues. 
Also because it's still the lingering after effects of the depression and the aftermath of the war, jobs in academia are very hard to come by. I mean, everyone is like by 36 is looking to get out. But Gödel resisted leaving Austria for yeah. a while, even well, while all this was going on. Were you able to uh, get that information from letters or correspondence that he initiated with some of his colleagues or friends? Yeah, well, there's certainly letters with friends to a limited extent. There's a very interesting diary-like notebook he kept in the year 37-38, where you see he's looking out for opportunities. He's, everyone he talks to, he's like recording their conversations and intensely interested in who's got a job at Cambridge University or somewhere in America. And Gödel did come, was invited several times as a visiting scholar at the new Institute for Advanced Study, where he ultimately ended up from 1940 on. And that institute was where? In Princeton, New Jersey. It's where Einstein was one of the original professors there and a lot of other, and still is this concentrated haven of great intellects in a lot of fields. But Gödel was a complicated man, psychologically troubled in many ways. He was afraid of taking a leap. He was afraid of doing something that would expose himself to public scrutiny by even by close friends. He was involved with this woman sort of clearly half reluctantly, who he ends up marrying in 1938, right. mm -hmm. and then comes for a year to America, leaving her behind, which is still something I don't think I completely, I'm satisfied, I understand the dynamics of what took place there. So he almost didn't make it out because in the summer of 1939, his year at Princeton, and then he went to Notre Dame uh, for a semester is up and he's going back to Austria. And his friend Karl Menger is basically saying, you're crazy. Why are you going back? Everyone tried to stop him and he, but he said he made up his mind and he went and he gets this letter. It was something like three days before the Nazis invade Poland, starting World War II, where he says, how did my final exams go in the class I taught, some other things. And then he's suddenly faced with the prospect he may not be able to leave because it's becoming impossible to get a tourist visa or an immigration visa to the U.S. because everyone was trying to get out. Uh, the Nazi authorities are basically concerned about not letting people who have talent that might be able to help the war effort out. He even gets called up for the draft and is found uh, liable for garrison duty. So he may even be drafted into the German army. And through the miraculous effort of friends like John von Neumann, famous mathematician and others in the U.S., found enough loopholes with the State Department and with the German authorities. And he gets his visa, gets his exit visa from the Germans uh, in January 1940. And the only route he can now take to get to Princeton, New Jersey from Vienna is the other way around the world. He has to go to Moscow, across the Trans-Siberian Railway, by steamer to Yokohama, Japan, and then ocean liner across the Pacific and then train across the entire United States. <laughs> Amazing. <Yeah. laughs> so let me ask you, because, you know, it's, it's really interesting, as you said, his friends and colleagues really were instrumental in helping to get him out of the country. 
So did Gerda leave papers? How were you able to get all those details and the conversations that he right. had with right. his friends and colleagues? Well, there's a number of sources, as you'd expect. Man Carl Menger, who I mentioned, who was his colleague, who was at Notre Dame briefly and had helped Gerda come as a visiting professor then, was quite close to him, wrote uh, a memoir late in his life with a lot of very detailed recollections. And he quoted from letters that Gerda wrote to him. Girl was one of these people who never threw a scrap of paper away. So there's his tailor's bills, the bill from the plumber. I mean, there's everything. But where, where are they housed? They were all bequeathed to the Institute for Advanced Study after his wife's death. I mean, nominally, they're in the Institute's archives, but because a lot of people wanted to use them and they weren't really set up, they are on deposit at Princeton University's manuscript division at their, their main library. So that's okay. where I went to look at them. And um, there's recollections of other reminiscences from friends that have been published. He was not a prolific letter writer. And in fact, in his later years, he would frequently write letters and shove them in, the, in his desk drawer and never send them, mm. uh, which really, I mean, part of his, I think, paranoia, I think, and some of his psychological problems coming out more than. So there's the papers, the girdle papers there in Princeton, which is the major source. But there, there's a lot of other ancillary sources that I found very helpful and often in some ways uh, even more illuminating, you know, to really figure out what was going on at this point. Um, oh, and I should mention, I mean, one of the other really important sources was his other close friend, Oscar Morgenstern, economist at Princeton University, who did keep an absolutely meticulous daily diary. Mm. So I know, I mean, girl went to tea at Morgenstern's house this day, and they spoke about X, Y, and Z. And, and in fact, he wrote quite a bit too about um, Gertle's, uh, you know, some of his problems and his mental health uh, issues, quite frankly, in these diaries. You know, you're also talking about some major figures. You mentioned them earlier in mathematics, in economics, yeah. in philosophy. And yeah. of course, one of the major figures once he came to the United States and even before was Albert Einstein. And they right. became fast friends and, and colleagues. How do you manage to keep from having these other towering figures take over <laughs> the narrative? Well, that's the real jigsaw puzzle I find in writing history and biography because you need to introduce these people. You need to figure out where in the narrative structure is the most effective way to bring them in. And as you say, you can't get too diverted, but there were, I mean, my goodness, it was one after another. It's Albert Einstein, it's John von Neumann, it's um, Wittgenstein, the great philosopher, it's uh, the great challenge in, in putting the story all together in many ways. And, and you had to find a way to economically introduce these people, but you want to bring them to life. This is a challenge and a very enjoyable aspect is doing these sort of quick brush paintings of somebody to introduce them. You know, sort of who they were, where they came from, what they looked like, what their sort of character was. How would you describe this person in, you know, two paragraphs or three paragraphs? And so that's something I'm very conscious of, and I'm very conscious of 
fig, trying to figure out how do you fit this in to keep the story moving forward. And um, sometimes it's thematically, sometimes it's chronologically, but yeah, there was, you know, I mean, probably a dozen people in Girdle's story that I wanted to give this treatment to. Yeah, basically you got to do it quickly and economically, but one hopes vividly too. Yeah, well, I think they were vivid. <laughs> so, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, congratulations on that. You have a lot of photos and illustrations yeah. and maps sprinkled throughout the text. Yeah. So, you know, because a lot of publishers restrict the number of visuals because they're so much more expensive to reproduce than <laughs> just plain text, how did you get um, that kind of support from Norton to be able to have so many photographs and illustrations? You know, I, yeah, I'm not an expert on, on, the, on the production aspects, but I believe if they're on the page rather than like on a glossy insert, it's not nearly as expensive a proposition. It becomes much more expensive when you're doing one of these inserts on you know, heavy, glossy paper, especially if it's color, then it, you have to have a separate process for that. And you know, I used to always be a believer. I said, I want good quality. So I want an insert, a photo insert. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the things I learned from my news magazine days was ideally the picture should tell a story in sequence themselves that parallels the story you're, that the writing does. And so for starting, I guess, with Hol my biography of Holmes, I really said, you know, okay, this is the way to go. You may lose some in quality in the print edition, but what you're going to gain is having the image right there. When I've introduced uh, this person, there's a picture of them right there, so you can see it on the page. Now, one of my pet peeves, of course, is that the standard publishing contract is the author pays for all of the rights, permissions, and so on out of his right. pocket, unless right. there's some special arrangement. Mm -hmm. And it can amount to quite a lot of money. But, you know, I felt it's important. And uh, I mean, they would have been complete. I mean, I think I had about 80 images and maps and so on in this book, but they were fine with that as long as, like I said, as long as I was paying for all the permissions. <laughs> How did you get access to some of the personal photographs of uh, Girdle? A fair number are with his papers in Princeton. So uh, I was able to, you know, have Princeton University Library make copies for me. That was touch and go with the pandemic because, you know, I'd been there, I'd copied a slew of documents for my research. I knew the pictures I needed to have reproduced with high resolution. And then they shut down completely for however many months it was. And then I think it was last summer, they opened back up on a very limited basis. And of course they said priority is for Princeton faculty and students and supporting classes that are gonna start in the fall. So I'm like clearly at the bottom of the heap here <laughs> and I'm approaching deadlines, but they were wonderful. I mean, I told them the situation. I said, I know everybody thinks their situation is an emergency. And believe me, I understand you have much more pressing priorities, but if there's any way you can <laughs> get me these to meet my deadline and they did. So that was wonderful. There's a few of like these family pictures of him as an infant or with his parents that are floating around. And 
the originals actually seem to have been misplaced as far, I mean, I spent a long time trying to track him down. And I think around the time of the centennial of his birth in 2006, there were some exhibitions. And so those images, you know, are pretty clearly in the public domain at this point. You can find them on the internet. And that's what I ended up having to go with there after a lot of investigating to see is there anyone who's going to come out of the woodwork and sue me for claiming they own the copyright? Are there any living relatives? No, uh, no, he, no. And listen, you know, that's the other funny thing. I, I was telling my editor, I said, I think I realize now why I chose Ives, Holmes, and Girdle, because none of them had any living descendants. So they're not only safely dead, but there's no family to cause trouble for a biographer either. So, you know, <laughs> Girdle had no children. And his sole sibling, his brother, was uh, unmarried. And his wife bequeathed all the right, all the literary rights in his writings to the Institute for Advanced Study, who have been a real model, by the way, of, of open scholarship. And their attitude is, although they restrict access, I mean, you have to get permission. They have never, I think, turned down permission to anyone who has a serious project. Why journey to the edge of reason? As well, it was an allusion both to his pushing the bounds of logic and to his personal tenuous connection with reason with his own psychological difficulties. That was veteran writer Stephen Budiansky, author of Journey to the Edge of Reason, The Life of Kurt Gödel, published by W.W. W. Norton and Company in May 2021. This Zoom interview was recorded on July 8th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day. 